Well, when I first read over our text for today and realized we would be looking at it on New Year's Eve, the words, off with the old, popped into my head. I was feeling pretty good about the title of my New Year's Eve sermon until I decided to Google the phrase and discovered I had it wrong. <laughs> the phrase commonly used at uh, New Year's is out with the old and in with the new. However, off with the old does fit my sermon better. So that's what you're getting this morning. <laughs> anyway, while making it clear who Jesus is, that he is God and Savior and King, Paul also made clear what it is we have been given in him. In him, Paul says, we have been made complete. In him, we have been perfected, made whole, cleansed of all sin, made acceptable to the Father. He continues with that thought and helps us understand how we've been made perfect in Colossians 2, 11 through 15, a passage that Jonathan already read this morning, but we're going to read again. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In order to completely strip off the old, Paul notes that we were circumcised and baptized, and then to assure us that the old flesh and its effects had really been removed, something was nailed and someone was disarmed. Let's explore this together and see if off with the old doesn't work. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, I will never forget a question that was asked by a girl in my high school youth group some 50 years ago. I don't remember what brought up the question, but I vividly remember the question. She asked, why is it only boys get to be circumcised? Now, I don't remember how it was answered, <laughs> but I do remember all the boys in the class 
broke out in laughter. Funny thing is, however, that according to our text this morning, the question really isn't valid. When writing to all the Colossians, males and females alike, Paul said, In him you were also circumcised. Apparently we need to go back and take a closer look at circumcision. The first mention of circumcision in the Bible is found in Genesis 17. When, after telling Abraham he would make a nation of him and that kings would come forth from him, God told Abraham to seal the covenant in a rather unusual way. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of a covenant between me and you. Why God chose circumcision to be the sign, he doesn't tell us. Apparently, it was to be something that would remind men of the covenant God had made with them, and it was symbolic of the removal of the uncleanness that had separated them from him. That God intended it to be more than the mere removal of skin, however, was made clear when the law was restated in Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. Circumcise, then, your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Literally, it says, circumcise, then, the foreskin of your heart. God wanted them to remove whatever it was that was covering their heart and keeping them from intimate intercourse with him. That they failed to do so was soon evident. Even before they reached the promised land, God had to discipline the Israelites for their unfaithfulness and hostility against him. And he did so in the hopes that their uncircumcised hearts would become humbled. And that they would make amends for their iniquity. He tells us that in Leviticus. 800 years later, after the fall of the nation and during a time of captivity, Jeremiah would still have to tell them to circumcise themselves to the Lord and to remove the foreskins of their heart. Eventually, he had to warn them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. For all the nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. 
the Apostle Paul told the Colossians, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He was telling them that Christ had removed the uncleanness that had separated them from their creator. Christ had done for them what no man could do for himself. Christ was making it possible for us to have a circumcised heart, a cleansed heart, without which we and all who are uncircumcised of heart would find themselves condemned on Judgment Day. Fortunately, through Christ, we can be cleansed. And that cleansing comes through what Paul next mentions, baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. After encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, was told, And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It's in baptism that our sins are washed away and our hearts are made clean. The writer of Hebrews assured us of this when he wrote, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Just as Noah's flood cleansed the earth of sin, so baptism now cleanses our hearts by washing our bodies. Not that there is any power in the water itself to cleanse us, but in the act of baptism we express our faith in what Christ has done for us, and we appeal to God for a good conscience. Peter makes this clear when talking about those who were brought safely through the water in Noah's day. He writes, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an act of obedience in which we express confidence that God will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He can remove the dirt, the stain, the sin from our heart. And he does so through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, something we are allowed to share in. Through immersion into Christ. Paul explains how this happens in Romans 6, 3 through 6. Or do you not know that all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become yet united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we should be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In baptism, our old self is crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with. In baptism, we are off with the old and on with the new. And that is made possible because the sin and the penalty that enslaved us has been nailed to the cross. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The penalty for sin is death. That has always been the case. Before sin had even entered the world, Adam was warned by God that eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would result in death. And when he sinned, he was doomed to die because he was cut off from the tree of life. The penalty for sin was then demonstrated graphically when God ordained that perfect, innocent animals should be sacrificed to cover up a man's sin with blood. Not that their blood could actually atone for the sin of man. For as the writer of Hebrews made clear, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But as God had also made clear to Abraham some 700 years before the law was instituted, God himself would provide the sacrifice. And he did so on the same mountain on which Abraham had been asked to sacrifice his son. When Christ went to the cross, he did through his blood what the blood of animals could never do. He paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the debt we owe. He paid for our redemption. I almost hate to admit it, but I watch Pawn Stars. And while most who appear on the show want to sell what it is that they bring to the shop, the primary business of a pawn shop is pawning. 
If you pawn something, you are borrowing money on an item you hope to one day be able to redeem. Of course, it costs more to redeem than you were given for it. And most of the time, the items are never redeemed. They're sold at a profit by the owner of the pawn shop. Through sin, we, in effect, sell our soul to the devil. We make ourselves unacceptable to a perfect God, fit only for eternal separation from him. Now, we think we can buy our soul back through good works, but soon discover that that is impossible. There is nothing we can do to merit our redemption. The perfect Son of God, however, can redeem us. And He has, in fact, already paid the price for our redemption. In Ephesians 1, 7 and the first part of 8, we read, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us. When we allow Him to redeem us, He cancels out our certificate of debt. He takes the debt we could never repay, pays it in full, and then nails it to the cross. When we see our Savior pictured on a cross, we should see more than Jesus with nails through His hands and feet. We should see a certificate of debt with our name on it, nailed to the cross with Him. In fact, we should actually see more than just our name on the cross. We should see ourselves there as well. For it wasn't only the flesh of God's Son that was pierced on the cross. In baptism, we joined Him there. So it was also our sinful body of flesh on the cross. And when we expressed a desire to join him on the cross, die to self, and crucified the flesh, we were given the assurance that our debt of sin had been canceled. We were made alive with him by dying with him and by then being raised together with him. And the forces that were hostile to us were disarmed. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. God triumphed over the rulers and authorities when he triumphed over them by raising his son. And it wasn't just the Roman and Jewish authorities who were defeated. Indeed, they thought they had sealed the threat to their power in the tomb. They had killed him and buried him. But he rose from the dead, and their soldiers 
were found on the ground like dead men. But the Roman and Jewish authorities were minor players in the drama of salvation. Actually, they were pawns being used by the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan and the demonic forces thought they had defeated Christ. But even while his body was in the tomb, he made proclamation to the spirits. And I'm convinced the proclamation he made was that they had been defeated. And not only had their attempt to destroy the Son of God failed, they had lost their right to bring accusation against us. In Revelation 12, we are given a picture of what happened when Christ defeated the dragon and his angels. The vision puts it this way. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. No longer can Satan, the adversary, the accuser, condemn us because of our sin. The penalty for our sin was paid. And the accuser of the brethren no longer had a charge to bring against us. The certificate of debt which condemned us to eternal separation from our Heavenly Father, was nailed to the cross. What Satan could rightfully use to condemn us was gone. He was disarmed by the blood of the Lamb. Our sin was removed from us as far as the east is From the West. When Satan now tries to bring accusation against us by pointing out our sin, God asks, What sin? Our sin is gone. Through Christ, we were able to do what we could never do without Him. Through Christ, we are able to say, off with the old, and it's actually gone. Let's stand.